So as a passive investor, you can invest in GP interest of the deal, but that usually comes along with very interesting caveats. Number one, sometimes when you invest in GP interest, the GP interest is subject to the performance of the LP investors. What's going on, guys? Thank you for tuning in. This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Really excited to bring this interview to you today with Hunter Thompson from ASIN Capital and the Cashflow Connections podcast. Today, we're talking about the variety of ways to passively invest in real estate or the different structures that people use to passively invest in real estate. You might be familiar with one or two. You probably don't know about all of them. And Hunter's got a, an interesting, let's say, innovative strategy to take advantage of one of them in particular uh, that you might not be aware of. And it's a great dude, really smart, and he really knows what he's doing in all types of investing. He's got a great show for himself as well. So definitely recommend you check out the Cashflow Connections podcast. And uh, he's has a lot of experience and has written a fantastic book on raising capital for real estate for those of us that are on the more active side. But for the passive investors out there, there are a lot of great pieces of information about strategies, structures to use to passively invest in real estate in this interview. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and share the return. I'm very passionate about bringing people what I think to be the best information about getting actively passive in real estate. And Hunter is one of the best out there doing it today. So thank you for tuning in. Without any further ado, here we go with Hunter Thompson. Hunter, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you writing this great book. I've got a copy up, but that's not what we're talking about today. If anybody wants to get in the active side of real estate investing, definitely check out the content that uh, Hunter puts out there, at least in book format and your podcast as well. I appreciate that. You can get it for free at raisingcapitalforrealestate.com. All you got to do is pay for the shipping. And that's the quick pitch. Now you can jump into this passive approach to investing stuff, which I'm also a big fan of. Perfect. Perfect. But before we do that, even you've been on the show before, but not everybody's heard that interview. Can you give us a quick introduction about what you do and what, especially what you're up to now? Cause I know you have some really interesting things going on with uh, ATMs. Yeah. So appreciate you uh, having me back on the program. It's an honor to be on. You had some great guests and put out some great content. So I really am Thank a you. fan of what you've done. Um, so yeah, I'll keep it short because my, my story is available in other interviews that I've done all over the internet. Just Google my name, you'll find it. But in short, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And one of my very few strengths is that I'm very much inclined to go right when most people are looking left. And as an investor, that can be a lucrative strength. And so the mother of all sensitivity tests for that particular strength is 2008, at least in my lifetime. So when 2008 happened, I very quickly found myself compelled by the financial markets for the first time in my life. I was dedicated to figuring out if there was really an opportunity as most of the greats would anticipate that there was when there's blood in the streets. And that was the mother of all blood in the streets moments. And so I started learning about value investing. I started learning about Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett and just reading and absorbing as much as I could while still in college and then investing based on their guidance and had success as most people do when investing in 2008, but really hit a massive roadblock in 2010 
which is something that not enough people talk about. But for me, it was just a massive wake up moment. And that was because the European debt crisis took place. Now, in truth, the European debt crisis didn't really impact my portfolio over the long term. But what it tapped me into was the concept that regardless of how much reading I do, regardless of who my mentors are, regardless of how good I am at selecting companies that were well positioned to weather that massive storm, something as obscure, as unpredictable, unmitigatable as the Greece or German bond yields was going to create massive volatility and potentially collapse my portfolio on an intraday basis. And so that realization made me contemplate there must be another way. There must be a more straightforward way to identify risks, mitigate them, and create predictable outcomes through cash flow investments. And I was open to anything, but real estate has just got so many benefits that I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with. And was very fortunate to meet the right people at the right time and created an investment company, just my own personal portfolio. And then for my mom and my sisters and then my friends, and we went from five investors to 10 to 100 to hundreds, and we have about $100 million under management now. So that's a quick story about my firm, ASIM Capital. And we can talk about that journey for another time, but um, that's where I am today. Appreciate you giving us the story in that way. Everybody who's somehow not familiar with you yet now uh, knows what we're talking about. We're really, today we're going to talk about the various ways to passively invest in, in real estate and Again, this is another concept that you uh, addressed in the book. So folks should uh, check out the book, but we're going to talk about it here today. So let's break into it. What's the first way to get into real estate investing? So when most people think about real estate, the thing that they're most familiar with is typically referred to as the active approach to investing. And so what that means is you are actively going to be an owner of real estate, even if you have a property manager in between you and the asset. That would still be considered active ownership because you're interfacing with the property manager. You're making those key decisions about the business plan implementation. So for example, when to raise rents, when to sell the property, whether to refinance, it all comes back to you making those key decisions. And because of that, you have a large degree of control. Now, the challenge with that strategy, one of at least, is that it lends itself to overallocation to particular assets or asset product types. The reason this is the case is that the division of labor is, is critical. And so you have to have a market advantage if you're going to generate asymmetric returns. So what does that mean? You focus on one particular niche, one market, one asset class, one risk profile, et cetera, which makes sense in terms of economics. But the problem is from an investment standpoint or a financial planning standpoint, it's not really compelling. You know, we all know someone who potentially made a million dollars, even $10 million, and then lost it all because of that overallocation. I mean, the biggest version of this that I'm familiar with, at least, is Ike Batista, who at one point, I believe, was the sixth richest person in the world, had all of his entire empire in oil and gas. And then in around 2014, when oil and gas suffered something similar to what real estate went through in 2008, everyone listening to this podcast has a higher net worth than Ike Batista now. Sixth richest, most people would consider him to be financially free bind beyond any imaginable belief. And then now a negative net worth of like a hundred million or a billion dollars, depending on who you ask. So, and not him, right? You don't want to ask him about this, but the reality <laughs> is it inverted his net worth to a large degree. 
because of that overallocation. Now, he probably knew what he was doing, maybe more than anyone. He even had market advantage where he could let people know where he thought oil prices would go, and they would go there just because of what he said. So that's just a very clear picture as far as why the active approach may lend itself to overallocation. So what I have been really compelled by since the inception of my career is the passive approach. I'm very much concerned with the predictability of outcome when it comes to building my portfolio or my investor's portfolio. And the only way that I've found to do this is to focus on the passive approach or a quasi-hybrid approach, which is really how I developed my career. So what the passive approach is, is typically investing in real estate through a third party. And I can talk briefly about what those different structures may look like, but that's from a structural standpoint, you know, how I like to position my, my investment vehicles and my portfolios through the passive approach to investing. Okay. Okay. And I think it's another important thing to bring up about the active side of investing is, you know, the busy professionals out there who make the money that they live on through another means rather than real estate investing really come across not just uh, being too uh, concentrated in one asset class or market, but you just run out of time in your day. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you're limited by something that we can't make more of, right? You can always make more money. You can't make more time. And so it's not just that. I mean, it's just endless. The reason for passive investing, it's the diversification, the geographic diversification, the risk profile diversification, the asset class diversification, et cetera, but also the lack of liability. If you're a passive investor, you're not exposed to property level liability. And that drastically changes the risk profile of a real estate investment. You don't have to worry about that or credit risk. So all the reasons that I'm sure some of your listeners are already familiar with, I'm a big proponent of it. So uh, we can talk about kind of the, the structural ways to do that. And I'd be happy to go into those details. Okay. Absolutely. So the, mace, the most straightforward way to invest passively in real estate is through debt. And the way this would work is a way a typical hard money loan works. So that's not the only way to invest in debt and real estate. You have an active owner who says, okay, I have a property that I'm going to buy, renovate, tenant, and sell, or some variation of that. As opposed to you, the passive investor, buying the asset and participating in the potential upside, I'm just going to give you an IOU. I'm going to say, you give me $100,000, I'll buy this $100,000 house and fix it up. By the time it's done, it'll be worth $200,000. So your equity is protected. And I'll give you an 8% interest rate on this $100,000. Now I'm going to owe you about $700 a month, somewhere in that range, every single month for 12 months. And if at any time during that 12-month period, I fail to make that $700 a month payment, I would be in default and you can foreclose on the collateral, which is the house that I'm flipping. Now, I've heard a lot of people joke around about, quote, hard money, saying that the reason it's called hard money is it's hard to get or it's hard to maintain, It's high, the interest rate's high. The reason it's called hard money is because there's a hard asset associated with the loan. That hard asset is real estate in this case. So the beauty of this structure, though, is that it doesn't matter how well they do to a large degree. They can fit the house and be incredibly successful. They can barely make a profit. They can struggle to tenant the property. But no matter what happens, they are owed, the passive investor is owed that predetermined fixed rate payment of 8%. 
And no matter what happens, if they default, you can foreclose and take that collateral. So that's a very simple way to get into the real estate space without incurring all the work that goes along with it. And you're just going to get that predictable outcome, which I mentioned a few times now. Absolutely. And we've kind of delved into the process of that with someone who does this successfully on a previous interview with Jaspreet Beveja. So if anybody wants to learn more about kind of specific of that of finding the deals, we talked about that in the past and that'll be in the show notes, but it's not the only way. And it's one of the first ways that a lot of folks get into the passive real estate investing game. But if we're kind of moving on up or down or across the ladder, what's next after debt investing? So if you're an active owner, this is important for you as well, because you're going to make your life more complicated as we get deeper and deeper into these things. But as a passive investor, you may say, well, look, I'm looking at this on paper. This guy's going to make $100,000. I'm going to make eight grand on my $100,000 investment. He's going to invest no money and potentially make a hundred grand for doubling the value of the property or something in that range. And so you may want to participate in the upside. Now, Again, the most common way to do this is what's referred to as a joint venture. And the key here is that you're a percentage owner of whatever LLC you create to flip this property or whatever agreement you come in, you will be a participant in the proceeds. It could be 25% of the proceeds, it could be 50% of the proceeds. Generally speaking, if one party puts up the capital and another party does all the work, it's usually a 50-50 partnership. Right, That's the quintessential 50-50 real estate partnership. But a key important determining factor as far as compliance is concerned is that to be a true joint venture, you need to have some oversight, some control. You can't simply defer to someone else. Now, it could be the case that in practice, that's maybe how it's going to play out, right? You're just a passive investor. You have $100,000. You know someone that slipped 12 properties in 2019. You're going to defer to their expertise. But on paper, what must happen is meaningful input in terms of the fact that you have voting rights. You have control. You have some capacity for control. I'm sure you've interviewed several attorneys on this program, and they probably will all have a different exact verbiage for this. But there is something called the Howey test, which I talk about in my book, which is one of the ways to determine if someone is creating or issuing a security. And one of the three or four, excuse me, four ways of determining that is whether or not the person is deferring to someone's expertise. It's okay to defer to their expertise, but whether they're 100% reliant on a third party to generate profit. So you want to stay away from that in a typical joint venture structure, because when you enter the world of securities, it's a completely different ballgame. Now, it's the ball game in which I've built my whole career, but you don't want to unknowingly enter into that and call it a joint venture because there's a litany of disclosures and documentation and, and operating agreement specificity that you'll need to do if you do go into the world of syndications and securities, which is the next one I'm going to talk about. So not sure if you had any further input there, but that's a typical joint venture structure. Absolutely. I just wanted to say that if you spend a lot of time at like RIA's local networking events and getting to know people, at least when we're outside of uh, COVID, you'll see a lot of things happen that are JVs that maybe don't really pass that test. Mm. And it, it seems like they're fairly common. That doesn't make it the legal thing to do, but it seems like it happens more often than not, at least from my personal observation. 
there's a lot of things that happen in this industry that <laughs> the level of sophistication is just because they haven't opened their eyes to that reality, right? But there's maybe even people listening to this program that go, whoops, I'm not going to make that mistake again, right? And anybody that's been in this industry, they've had one of those moments. Hopefully, you don't lose any investor capital. Hopefully, you can you know continue and cycle that deal through. But on the next one, you should not do any sort of mistake that's going to later bite you. So that's one example. And I think you're absolutely right there. So let's move on to investing in syndications. Um, and I'll talk about what another term in just a moment, but let's first LP investments in syndications. So mentioning the Howey test is important here because if I invest into a syndication, the typical structure is the LP slash GP classes of ownership. GP is short for general partner. This is someone who is responsible for implementing the business plan. They don't have to necessarily be the property manager, but they're interfacing with the property manager and they're making a decision on most likely when to buy, when to sell, where to buy. They're the one with all the advantages and the relationships and the software and the specificity and the particular asset class that you want to defer to as an LP investor. So as an LP investor, my goal is to be limited in my participation. And, you know, when people talk about, you know, limited liability companies, the formal definition of a limited liability company is that you're limited to your investment. That's the only thing that you stand to lose is your investment. Now, again, I'm not an attorney. You can qualify all this with whoever you want to talk to, but that's kind of the, the big picture vocabulary word and the way that people use that in typical vernacular. So a general partner is someone who's implementing the business plan. And there's a line in the sand that says, I'm a limited partner over here and you're a general partner over here. And that line is important. When you create that line where one party has a lot of control and the other doesn't, and the LP investors are deferring to someone else to implement the business plan and they expect to make a profit, now we're getting into how we test. And yes, that would be a security. So what you do as a passive investor is you say, hey, look, I've got $100,000. Rather than me buy one $100,000 property, how about 10 of us each invest $100,000? We'll have a million dollars of equity. We can probably use debt because of who the sponsor is, the general partner. They have relationships with lenders and maybe buy a $3 million property. We're pooling investors together, to deferring to someone else's expertise. And now the general partner is the one incurring all the, the time and the required time that goes along with that, the expertise, the liability that goes along with being that guarantor at the bottom of the loan. And you know, to be honest with you, a lot of people get the misconception, well, if you invest in real estate, these are not personally guaranteed loans. You're absolutely right. However, generally speaking, however, there's a reason that they need that person's signature and not yours. Because if you read those loan documents, if things go wrong, those loans can turn recourse. And that's really important. Like I've seen loan documents that say they only turn recourse in the event of a default, meaning <laughs> whenever it matters, right? It's actually not uncommon. So my point there is as a limited partner investor, I'm not exposed to that additional risk. I'm never going to get a phone call that goes, sorry, you invested in $50,000, but you owe $3 million now because of this loan. Not to mention the time and the diversification, all those things you already went into. So that's the typical... LP investment. And a lot of people are familiar with that. So I think that makes sense. But I think my explanation will probably give you kind of a, a stepping stone 
in terms of the framework that we kind of view this space and the other potential options. And there's a few more that I'd like to talk about as well that maybe aren't talked about quite as much. Love it. So most of the time when someone invests in a syndication, they're investing in LP interest. But sometimes sponsors need to come up with a co-investment for these deals, especially the case when you get into the quasi-institutional world. Let's say you're buying a 400-unit apartment complex, right? a $50 million property or something like that. And now the required co-investment, it may be very significant. If it's not a big family office or an institution of some kind, they may not want to invest $5 million of their own personal capital or whatever the requirement is. And so sometimes these large firms that are purchasing large assets, rather than invest 10% of the equity, they will actually raise, quote, GP equity. So as a passive investor, you can invest in GP interest of the deal. But that usually comes along with very interesting caveats. Number one, sometimes when you invest in GP interest, the GP interest is subject to the performance of the LP investors. It's not always the case, but sometimes it's the case where before the GP gets paid on his co-invest, investors need to receive all their preferred return and a 100% return of capital. And then it's kind of similar to the waterfall. Now, when you do this, you're getting potentially incredibly lucrative returns because you're basically using leverage on leverage. You're using leverage at the bank, but then you're using leverage of the LP investors. The problem is that LP investor capital is very expensive. So think about it like this. You know, If you've ever heard an LP investor receive a 20% IRR in a deal, which is obviously insane, but I've done it and our investors have done it. That means that behind that, there's a potential GP investor that's going, okay, I'll take the 5% loan at the bank and I'll take a basically a 20% loan, what's in effect a 20% loan from the LP investors, and then my GP capital will be subject to those. But at that point, you could see like, as opposed to a 20% return, you could see something like a three or four X type of return. So it's a very different risk profile. I've actually never done it, but I've contemplated it. You know, as you start to have a one, two, three, four, five million dollar portfolio, incurring those types of risks could be appropriate on a risk adjusted basis because every now and then they go really well and it can balance out maybe some things that didn't go as well as planned. Those singles that were supposed to be singles and ended up being bunts that ended up in an out, if I'm going to use my metaphor there, with a big enough portfolio, it's appropriate to balance out those risks of those things happening with some GP type of capital. So I don't hear much people talk about that and for good reason, but there are funds out there that all they raise is GP interest. They create a part, a relationship with a strategic partner, and then they raise that GP equity. Wow. So if you're in that situation, so you're a limited partner in a fund that invests GP equity, then does the general mm. partner in that fund, I guess, have a vote as a GP in the, you know, and company that actually owns the asset. I mean, they still have GP rights, right? You know, it's interesting. Before I even answer that question, let's kind of, for, especially for those that are listening on audio, let's kind of envision what we're talking about, right? Sure. So we have an LLC that is going to own a property. In that LLC, there's typically, let's say, 100 investors investing to that LLC in the LP section of that LLC. Then there may be 20 investors investing in the GP section of that LLC. 
Now, what I mentioned was having a GP fund. So rather than having 20 investors investing in the GP equity, there would be one investor, that GP fund, investing into that LLC. And under the GP fund, there's 20 investors. Make sense? So the question you're asking then is, okay, wait, in the GP fund, there's also a GP and an LP. There's the LP investors investing in the GP fund, which is investing in the GP of the LLC. <laughs> and in that GP fund, there's also a GP. Now, the next question is, well, how do I invest in the GP of the GP fund? Well, that must be the craziest <laughs> returns, which I've actually never seen. But you can imagine a situation where it might exist if that GP fund goes, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll co-invest similarly. So um, what I've typically seen is that everything, any question that you're going to ask about that potential structure is going to come down to the operating agreement. So we've seen deals where, yes, you are going to be a 20% economic owner, or I should say 80%, you know, the, let's say the GP fund is an 80-20 split. 80% of the profits go to those LP investors in the GP fund. But your voting rights are limited to removing the manager, something like that. And that's it. You don't have the ability to tell anybody when to sell any particular asset. You don't have the ability to decide which asset goes in this GP fund, blah, blah, blah. The fund documents may say, we're only going to invest in this and this and this type of asset within a sponsor that meets this and this and this criteria. But it's just a matter of reading the documents, which is something that very few people do, but it's the answer to most of your questions, unfortunately. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's in the more straight up syndication space a lot of times. It's just, it depends and you have to read the operating agreement and all that it's it's it could exist but you have to look at the the specific uh specific situation so does that cover all of them or are there any remaining that we haven't uh hit yet in your structure you know i'll talk about one more and you mentioned the atm fund which depending on when this is released you can learn more about that at asymcapital.com it's a fascinating space and if we give time i can just touch on it briefly but the atm business is the type of business that if you get 10 investors in a room and say that you're investing 20% of your net worth in ATMs, four are probably going to leave immediately without hearing anything about the business plan. And I have found throughout my career that if you can get four smart investors to pass before they see any details, you probably are in a space that can generate very favorable returns for at least a decade. This is the mobile home park business in 2010. Mm -hmm. Why in the world would you want to invest in that tenant base? I'm going to have to fly and take three connecting flights to get to any of these assets. It's going to take me forever. <laughs> if I raise $50 million, how am I going to buy 300 mobile home parks or whatever it is? All those reasons are just, that's just branding. That's just marketing. They're talking about things that most people already know. Oh, the ATM business, who uses ATMs? Well, you know, <laughs> click there to find out more, right? So anyway, <laughs> the reason I say this is that it's actually a good example because the predictability of outcome is so important to investors. The way this particular offering is structured is that there is a contractual rate which the manager contractually pays the limited partner investors. It says, you invest this and we will give you a percentage of that on an annual basis or a monthly basis. You will get this exact payment stream or we, the manager, will be in default at which point you can foreclose, take the ATMs, and most importantly, take the placement contracts for these ATMs, which are in places like Walgreens and CVS, Fortune 500 companies all up and down the New Jersey Turnpike. So the cool thing about that is that the 
predictability of outcome is even different than a typical real estate deal. You know, we're not talking about a typical pro forma. We're talking about this will be received or there's going to be hell to pay or functionally the manager will lose their business to a large degree. So what's cool about that is that it acts like debt, but it's technically kind of like a preferred equity type of play because the LP investors are partial owners of the physical ATMs and through an, L an LLC, a fund. They are proportional owners of the fund and that fund owns ATMs. And the big difference there is that ATMs are depreciated over a five-year period as opposed to 30, which is typical of real estate or 27. So for people that invest in real estate, you know depreciation can pretty much offset cash flow during the hold period. You invest $100,000, you get $8,000 of cash flow. Usually 100% of that cash flow is tax deferred because of the 3% per year, basically, that the physical property is losing value. It's a tax write-off. It's a cashless tax write-off. Well, with ATMs, because the depreciation schedule is so short, even if you receive close to 24% cash flow on an annualized basis, an additional roughly 7% or so of your investment amount will be an additional loss above the $24,000 being deferred. And now, of course, this is not tax advice. I'm not saying this is how it's going to play out. It's all about your own personal situation, the amount of income that you have, blah, blah, blah. But the point here is that this pref equity type of structure allows you to have the predictability of outcome, but experience the massive, massive benefit of the physical ATMs depreciating. So it's a very, very, in my opinion, compelling investment vehicle because of that predictability. Interesting. Okay. So yeah. So to kind of follow up on that, if your taxes are complicated enough where you're worrying about depreciation, depreciation schedules, you got to be working with a CPA. Like don't listen to podcasts and take your tax advice from that. Then this isn't tax advice anyway, but, and, and I also Important like distinction. Sure. Sorry. The podcast can be incredibly helpful, but you shouldn't take the information and go, now I know how to do it. What you should do is, but when you have excellent guests on this program that are CPAs, if you're listening to this, you should reach out to them. So I'm not that guy. I'm not that CPA. I'm the guy that knows how to analyze passive deals. And I understand how to send an email and raise $5 million. So on those topics, if you're interested, I'm the guy. So you can reach out to me. And there's other guys that can do similar things. Whichever guy you feel from a gut perspective aligns with your worldview or whatever, they should be the people that you model your career after. But when it comes to legal stuff, tax accounting, you have to talk to your professionals to make those decisions. 100%, 100%. And you know, folks that if you're out there listening to any podcasts and there's somebody that you want to talk with, whether it's a CPA, attorney, whatever, they're on that podcast. So you reach out to them. So folks are sometimes intimidated by that, but that's why they're there is, is to really meet people like you. And what's the worst that could happen? They don't respond. Who cares? Like you just move on, find somebody else you're interested in talking to, but you got to be really, you know, the passive investing side, you got to be willing to put yourself out there and Get your hands a little dirty. Can I give you a quick hack for that? And I Please. actually talk about this in my book Love it. as well. So when you're reaching out to people that are successful and it's a fact that their schedule is overwhelming, they want to be moving faster than they are. So what you have to do is get their attention. One of the best ways that I've found to get their attention, if you have listened to a bunch of Taylor's podcasts and you haven't yet reached out to him, here's the hack. And he's going to be mad at me for sharing this, but it's going to help you so much that I can't help myself. 
if you can dedicate yourself and really download and analyze and learn from this podcast, you're going to pick up a few nuances about Taylor's personality. And there'll probably be three or so things that you know that most other listeners don't know. If you have those three things in common with him, that's kryptonite. How can he say no? And I'll give you mine, but you can't email me now because I've given you the secret. But (laughs) if someone sends me an email, if they listen to a hundred of our shows and they go, you don't like the government, neither do I. You like to work out, so do I. And guess what? Everything I learned that was meaningful has made me money was not in the education system. That's me five years ago or 10 years ago. So I want to help the next generation do the same kind of stuff. So don't flood his emails, but that's the hack. That's a a really fascinating idea. uh, Yeah. I got anybody watching the video. I got a big black eye right now from Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So you're, if you do jiu-jitsu that there's, you're in, I'm I'm always happy to talk about I I know we talk every time. Okay. So let me say one more hack about that. Sure. Do cool stuff. Cause then you're going to have something really cool in common with the coolest people in the world. Okay. BJJ, there's a reason that there's so many cool granular, detailed, cerebral people that are attracted to that. If you haven't looked into that, take a look. Here's another one. You ever run a marathon? You ever done a triathlon? If you do one of those things, you will instantly have something in common with some of the coolest high achievers in the world. So I'm not saying do it because of that, but whatever one is like your thing, do it. And then you'll hear it next time someone brings it up. I love it. And jujitsu's, we're in a great spot where it's big enough that there are a lot of people involved, but it's still small enough that we can go train with the best people in the world just by paying a a mat fee or something like that. So if you're thinking about it, come join us. But uh, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Hunter, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Ready to do it. All right. Number one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So, I mean, looking at things on a risk-adjusted basis, we did talk about the ATM kind of thing, and that isn't really, I'm trying not to be biased, but I'll put it this way. The first thing that I look at when I look at most deals is I want to see what the debt structure looks like, because that's going to dictate to a large degree whether or not the money is going to be protected. Doesn't mean I'm going to make money, but in terms of principal protection, it's the number one most important thing. 99% of all the horror stories you've heard about people losing money in real estate, it's because something went wrong with the debt. The interest rate raised too quickly. The refinancing period was too soon. They weren't able to sell. They weren't able to find another lender. These are the same stories you hear over and over again. 2008 was an aberration, but it just highlighted what's always the case. So the fund produces a double digit return or is least protected to and doesn't use leverage. So that is very compelling. I mean, anyone listening to this, if you can have your whole portfolio meaningfully turning over at a, a, let's say a 10% IRR, especially in a net tax basis, you don't have to do it for very long before things start to get pretty nasty. You know what I mean? So Removing that potential risk regarding leverage alone is really compelling. And I don't want to go into more details. That's really not the intention. My, my point is to make the point that if you can limit your risk through analyzing debt, think about it. It's the majority of the capital stack and is 100% the time the most important thing when it comes to protecting principal. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. On the other side of that, we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah. So I just recently, and I mean, within the last two years, 
um, closed out a fund that we created, which was a test fund. It was a fund that we did not do through our company. It was a friends and family fund. It was about $400,000 to do a proof of concept for a non-performing note fund in which we were the operator. And basically purchasing non-performing notes behind performing firsts. And we were going to work those notes to get them re-performing and then sell them once they've been performing for three or six months. It's a common strategy. The challenge though, is that we drastically underestimated the scope and scale of what was required to make that business lucrative. So the fact that we did a test fund in and of itself created a huge problem. The fluctuations that are inherent in that business, the lack of predictability of outcome, the fact that typically 33% do this, 33% do this, 33% do this, that's not relevant if you don't have a large enough sample size. So we had to, first of all, we had to learn that lesson. Second of all, we realized we were deferring to someone's expertise that did not stand to gain a significant amount of money. So it's not attracting the caliber of person that should be handling an entire investment portfolio. Now we were the managers, but the people directly interfacing with the lenders are making 35, 45, $55,000 a year. And now you're back again in the single family space where people are scamming you for, oh, the air conditioning's broken again. I can't take a photo of it because my phone's gone. You've heard the story a million times. I hate playing small ball. I want to be dealing with people that stand to gain millions. And so who does that mean it attracts? Carl Icahn, Warren Buffett, the most sophisticated and savvy people that are all competing for my LP equity. And if they deliver, it'll change their lives. That's where I want to be investing. And so the real learning story with that was that it's hard to underestimate the scale that's required to make business models lucrative. And I also underestimated the amount of administration that it would take. That's just from a pragmatic standpoint, but here's what really happened. We had to come out of pocket to make investors whole. And that was a grind of my life. I mean, it wasn't catastrophic from a financial standpoint, but the time it took and to realize that not only were we not going to make money, we were going to lose money during the whole enterprise was a lesson that I needed to learn. And I also needed to be able to know that if I could financially come out of pocket and solve that problem so that all of our investors know he did the right thing, uh, that was a good feeling and a good entrepreneurial scar that I needed to have. And by the way, uh, you shouldn't be embarrassed about that if you've been through something like that, because anybody that knows anything about this business, they have those scars. And it's really important that you learn that lesson. And some people, for example, will not work with a firm unless they've been through a recession. I understand that. I don't agree with that though. There's so many firms out there that I have a tremendous amount of respect for that have not. The really the question is, did they just take off like a rocket ship and never have to sit in front of a mirror and go, who am I as a person because of what this business is doing to me? And, and I have, and the people that I've worked with have as well. So hopefully there's some key takeaways in there that I think are important. I certainly think so. And my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? So we talked already about kind of the hack. That's kind of my whole thing. I want to be able to give the playbook from my own track record and success. And I also want to learn from others. So real estate is not the business for innovation. It's the 100% of the time it works as long as you don't blow it in a big way one time. 
So what that means is that find someone that's done it in a successful manner that is similar to the way that you want to do it and impress them with the momentum that you created for yourself so that they will give you the playbook of their own success. Once you have the playbook, it's just about executing. Every time, by the way, there's not many times, but there has been one time in particular that I would consider myself an innovator in the space. That sounds ridiculous to say, but what really that means is that I spend $100,000 on legal fees trying to figure out how to create a couple of fund models that no one else had done. And what did it get me? Well, I get to say it now, but it's, it's useless. <laughs> now I just want to teach other people how to do it, right? So you should find that person. Don't be that person. It's not necessary in the space. Wow. Well, Hunter, I appreciate you bringing all of this today. If folks want to learn more about what you do, find your podcast, learn about the fund, where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, again, I appreciate you letting me uh, come on and happy to do it in six months again and talk about whatever. So if you want to learn more, if you're a passive investor, for example, our firm is ASYMcapital.com. If you're interested in kind of the quasi hybrid approach, which is what I do, participating both actively and passively in passive deals, or you're a real estate operator and are sick of trying to scramble for capital at the last minute because we've all been there and I hate doing that, calling some rich uncle you haven't talked to in six months. Oh, hey, listen, hey, can you give me a quarter million dollars or I'm going to lose this deal? You know, everyone's tried to do stuff like that. It doesn't work. Uh, I wrote a book about why that doesn't work and how to never do it again. And you can get that at raisingcapitalforrealestate.com. Great. Love the book. Love your podcast. And you're doing great things with uh, ASIM Capital. So definitely thrilled to uh, have you on the show today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating on a view on Apple Podcasts. Very much appreciated. Helps other people learn about the show. And if you shoot me a picture of your, you have your review, then I'm, I'm happy to talk with you uh, for that if you're looking for a reason to. Uh, Boom. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them in the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.